From the Jeff Nyquist Studios on California's North Coast and our flagship broadcast facilities at WIBG 1020, Atlantic City Suburban Philadelphia's number one news talk station, you're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. A full hour of stimulating, thought-provoking information you need to know, plus a whole lot more. Now with today's program, here's Jeff. I am Jeff Nyquist, and on the show, we're going to be discussing the Dark Continent, Africa, specifically Sub-Saharan Africa. Jan Lemprecht is our guest. He is author of the book Government by Deception, Psychopolitics in South Africa, and we're going to talk to him about the farm murders, about the decline of the economy in Southern Africa, and about the rise of an anti-American block of countries determined to deprive us of access to some of the world's most important natural resources that is in sub-Saharan Africa. And in a moment, we'll be right back with Jan Lemprecht. You're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. Thanks for making WIBG 1020 a part of your life. We're Live Radio 1020, WIBG. Where more people every day hear the truth. From Hurley in the Morning to The Wondrous Story with Dave Bailey, Jay Sekulow live in the American Center for Law and Justice, and Josh Henning Afternoons. South Jersey's cutting edge Christian news talk and your station for women oldies every weekend. WIBG 1020 and WIBG.com, plugging you into life. And now, once again, here's your host of the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show, Jeff Nyquist. My guest, uh, Jan Lamprecht, was born in Rhodesia and grew up during the time of the fierce Bush War, which resulted in the uh, overthrow of the government there and the coming to power of Robert Mugabe in 1980. Uh, welcome to the show, Jan. Hi there, Jeff. It's nice to be on your show. Well, it's good to it's have nice you. It's nice to have a chance to chat about these things again. You were originally from Rhodesia, and it's a country that's now called Zimbabwe. Tell us about Rhodesia and when you were living there and how it came to be Zimbabwe and what that means. Okay, I'll try and be brief about it. Basically, um, Rhodesia was a British colony, but it was a self-governing colony since 1923. Then when the British decided, uh, with the rise of the liberation movements that were sponsored by the Russians and the Chinese, the British decided to just make a dash out of Africa, and they couldn't wait to hand over power to any old Marxist or pretender who was interested in, in getting uh, control of one of these countries. So they handed over most of their colonies to almost anybody. Uh, but what happened in Rhodesia was there was a population of over 250,000 whites out of a total population of about four or five million people. And the whites were still in control, and the whites didn't want to hand over power to just anybody. And people like Robert Mugabe and others uh, who were around at the time, uh, the government of Ian Smith, said that they don't want to hand over power to an irresponsible government. And their only request always was actually just the simple words of a responsible government, and they didn't want to hand over to communists. And um, the result was that the Western world didn't like it, uh, and the United Nations put uh, comprehensive sanctions against Rhodesia. And when I mean comprehensive sanctions, I mean 
something that not even Iraq or Iran or or Cuba has ever felt. Nobody in the world has ever had the kind of sanctions that Rhodesia had. Uh, they didn't trade with us. They didn't sell weapons to us. We weren't allowed to do anything. We couldn't even sell meat or anything. Uh, so everything we had to do, we had to do illegally. Um, while the the world supported the Marxist and the liberate, liberation movement. But anyway, after 14 years of uh, a hard struggle, eventually the country pretty much started collapsing and they were forced almost at gunpoint to hand over power to the likes of Robert Mugabe. Many people say that Robert Mugabe is the first black president of Zimbabwe, but that's not true because there was another guy called Bishop Abel Muzarewa who also uh, won an election prior to Mugabe, um, but he was friendly to the whites. He was a reasonable guy. He was pro-Western, but that wasn't good enough because the liberation movements just didn't want to give in to somebody like that. So he ruled the country for less than two years, I think. And then uh, we were forced to have another election, but this time with communist participants. Uh, Robert Mugabe uh, broke every rule. He cheated in the election. He he didn't he didn't allow his troops to um, lay down their weapons, and they told all the blacks that if they didn't um, vote for him, then the war would never stop. And so he won the election, and he's been ruling the country ever since. I gather from what you said is that the blacks were living in a very primitive social state and the whites had come in and built farms and had built up something, so that the whites were concerned that the blacks under communists would take over and ruin what had been built up before and destroy property rights in the country. You're saying it exactly correctly. And property rights is actually a very crucial thing. That exact term, property rights, is something that people battled over with in Rhodesia and also South Africa. And when they eventually, in both cases, reached a settlement and both sides signed the new constitution, property rights was a very important part of that. And the whites weren't even prepared to sign any kind of deal that did not promise the, the right to own private property because these guys, with their Marxist ideas, wanted to get rid of uh, that. It was a big issue. People don't realize that if you don't have property rights, you really are like a slave. You're dependent on whoever controls the property, and that, in that case, the communists, the government, the Communist Party. And this is one of the issues in Africa that people don't understand. It, it just wasn't simply a race issue. It was also a issue of property rights. Ideological. Yeah, ideological. Let me just say something. You know, I see many Americans, for example, on the Internet, seem to feel guilty about the concept of capitalism. But here in Africa, the whites who live here, they don't feel guilty about capitalism. In this part of the world, socialism doesn't have much appeal to whites. And it's perhaps the simplicity of our economy and our structure here, that it's very obvious to us that the only thing that works is capitalism. And we don't believe in anything else. 
and uh, that also exacerbates the whole thing. Hmm. Because, you know, in a first world country that's got a strong economy, you can still go around and start talking socialism. But in Africa, we take, for example, Zimbabwe. There are 250,000 whites living an almost first world standard of living, and then you have 4 million blacks, or 5 million, or 6 million. Now, the minute you start talking socialism, the whites say that it's impossible. You can't let 6 million people sponge off of 250,000. And the same in South Africa, where you have 5 million whites, or you used to have 5 million whites, and you have about 40 million blacks. You know, so those kinds of debates are very ferocious debates in Africa, because we say that you can't have socialism because the economies are too simplistic, too backward. And, of course, it isn't the case that uh, really the white co colonialists built their economy on the backs of the blacks, but mostly the whites were the ones that brought in the technology and the capital and the know-how and that were able to make productive farms and productive mines where there had been nothing before. You must remember, Jeff, that Africa has only been colonized for between 100 and 300 years. Most of Africa was only colonized in the last 100 years. So you must know our situation in most of these countries, South Africa being the exception, but in most of these countries, you were living in a truly tribal society. You had people who had absolutely no economy until 100 years ago. The economy they had was truly tribal and primitive. And then a handful of whites arrived, a few thousand at most, and they began developing the nucleus of an economy. And once their economic and social structure was in place and it was successful, it was so superior to what the blacks were doing that the blacks started moving away from their subsistence type of life because they can see that even if they get paid a pittance in this new economy, they're still living better than they did when they were living a subsistence existence. In the, in the tribal way. Yes. It was like I, I explained to people on my website a while ago. You get the ANC in South Africa, for example. They say that we need, we need to get more jobs. But they first, what they do is they first want to put rules in place, rules that would exist in Europe and America. They want to create all sorts of rules to protect workers and to force companies to give all sorts of contributions. And what they do is they make it very expensive to employ an unskilled laborer. Now, in colonial times, the way it worked was colonialism actually took a, took a lemon and turned it into lemonade because basically the colonial whites said, what do we have a lot of that we can do something with? And the one thing they have a lot of is a lot of black, unemployed, unskilled labor. And you can immediately set them to work on, on farms. Now, in America, you could achieve the same thing by buying a sophisticated piece of machinery. But maybe that piece of machinery might cost you a million dollars. Now, in Africa, with our exchange rates and things, we wouldn't be able to afford that piece of machinery. But what we would be able to do we would be able to get hold of, say, a thousand unskilled black laborers and put them to work. They wouldn't be earning much, but at the end of the day, we would 
still be able to produce a product that's cheap enough that we could export, that we could make money on, and we could pay them a salary, whereas previously they wouldn't have anything. So that's the way that capitalism and colonialism started building Africa. We made use of cheap labor, and it worked very well. I remember I, I had a chance to meet the former mayor of Cape Town, Tom Sankwalinda, many years ago, and he described the black uh, standard of living in Africa as higher than the standard of living of white people in Russia. Exactly. There had been an increase for the blacks. They were actually improving, and, and they, had, they were building schools, and things were getting better for them. Jeff, that is exactly the case. And it was exactly the case all over Africa, including South Africa. And it's almost unthinkable, but blacks in South Africa under apartheid probably had a higher standard of living than most white people in Russia did at the same time. Mugabe took power, what, in 1980, right? Yes. Uh, so now describe what happened to the economy and to the whites in that country after the communists took power. I think what happened with Mugabe initially was that the Western world put some pressure on him because he was kind of well-behaved. He didn't immediately turn the country into a communist country. He actually surprised a lot of people, and he, he sort of towed the line for a while. And it began to slide down slowly, but it wasn't a catastrophe. And there were portions of it that, that were okay. And he, he used the money to finance a couple of wars that he needed. But as time went by, his promises didn't pan out. And just the other day, I was talking to somebody who was involved in the formation of the opposition in Zimbabwe now, the MDC. And these people were telling me that by the time the late 1990s arrived, the blacks were becoming more and more discontented with Mugabe's rule, and things were getting worse and worse. So the slow slide downwards became faster and faster, and he got himself embroiled also in more foreign wars, which were very unpopular. Uh, lots of blacks were being killed in foreign wars. And by the late 1990s, there was a movement among people to say that they need to start getting rid of this guy. And it started in about 1998. And among the people involved were even leftists, trade unionists, and so forth. And they formed what is now the Movement for Democratic Change. And um, the minute they started coming to the fore, and they were also being funded by some farmers, by some white farmers and so forth who were involved with them. That's when Mugabe just unleashed all hell, and he drove the farmers off the land, and he started uh, destroying the, the economy. And the economy is now totally shattered. Uh, they're heading this year for an inflation rate of 6,300%. Wow. Just give it time, Jeff. You're going to see an economy. It's going to break all kinds of world records yet hmm. in terms of being totally destroyed. Now, it's, it's remarkable. Mugabe has been in power since 1980. That's 27 years ago. And he's yes. been, I mean, no real democratic country sees some leader being consecutively reelected for 27 years. It just doesn't happen. It's not the way real democracy works. Yes. There were also lots of, 
lots of irregularities in various elections all throughout that period. And and I understand that he also used starvation as a weapon against areas of the country that voted against him. Yes, he did that. The other thing he also did, Jeff, um, that I think his original intention in 2000 was just to kill people outright through starvation. Hmm. But then the United Nations World Food Program stepped in and managed to keep people alive. Um, and in, in a way, that has also backfired on him because now they've managed to survive. At least a quarter of the country's population has fled since 2000. Um, he tried to control the food so that when food came from the United Nations, that it only went to his people. Um, he did that for a couple of years. What he did almost two years ago, as another way of punishing people who didn't vote for him, engaged in an operation uh, which he called Operation Cleanup. And basically what he did was he unleashed his police and bulldozers and things, and they went everywhere and they were smashing buildings smashing people's houses, wiping out shacks. They made about a million people homeless in a couple of weeks. And he just said no. He was just cleaning up the towns and the townships. And then he still said in his <laughs> mocking sort of way, he said that before you build something, you first have to destroy so he went and he destroyed all these people's houses, but the people whose houses he destroyed were the people who voted for the opposition. And then he said to them he would build better houses, and he's never built anything. Hmm, that's interesting. He's uh, received help from communist North Korea, that there were actually uh, communist North Korean troops in his country. Yes, what happened, Jeff, was um, there's a friend of mine called Rob Ellis, and Rob Ellis was a policeman. And uh, when we left school, he went into the police. And he was one of the very few people who saw firsthand the genocide that Mugabe engaged in. In 1980, after he came to power, there was a, a minority tribe called the Matabili, who are offshoots of the Zulus. And this tribe didn't like uh, Mugabe being in power. And um, there was some unrest and some infighting. And then at a point, Mugabe decided to, to sort of put them in their place. And the way he did it was he asked the North Koreans uh, for help. And the North Koreans came and trained a notorious army unit called the 5th Brigade. And the 5th Brigade was sent in to murder people. And they engaged in genocide, killing people. They were killing their children. They were wiping out whole villages. They were chucking their bodies down mine shafts and down wells. All in all, they murdered about 30,000 people. Hmm. And that brought uh, the Matabili resistance to an end. And that, that was the North Korean uh, group. In recent years, he has... Um, had his what he calls his turn to the east policy where he's been friendly to communist china he's bought tanks and various weapons from communist china since 2000 and he's even made it compulsory 
I think he's engaged in a huge program to teach people Chinese, and he's brought in Chinese businessmen, and he's tried to borrow uh, money from China, and all sorts of things.、Hmm. Very friendly to China these days. So he's like a satellite of China, really. He wants to, and he's made no no bones about it. But what he's also trying to do is he's trying to encourage the rest of Africa to go the same way. And you know, a lot of people say, "Oh well, Mugabe's just a freak." But you know, I made a I made a kind of a prediction back in 2001 when I wrote my book, Government by Deception. Among the many things that I sort of predicted, which which have come true, I I wrote a chapter called the Marxist Brotherhood, and I said that. In the future, Mugabe, aligned with South Africa, would try to spread this kind of sick thinking, this kind of communism, among other Black African nations. And you know, just a few weeks ago, the SADC countries, the SADC region is—it's 14 countries making up the Southern African Development Region. A couple of weeks ago, they had a meeting about Zimbabwe, and Robert Mugabe attended. And the United States and everybody thought that Sadek would rap Mugabe over the knuckles. Instead, Sadek gave Mugabe the thumbs up to, and I quote here, to fight the Western world in Zimbabwe. Now, what this means is Robert Mugabe says. That the MDC, the Movement for Democratic Change, he says that the MDC is funded by Britain and America, and there could be truth to this. In fact, the United States State Department have openly said that they are now funding the opposition to Mugabe. They're not funding them with weapons, but they're giving them some kind of cash, and for the Last year and a half, there have been rumours that the CIA has met with them and so on. Now Mugabe walks around and says that he doesn't want to talk to puppets. He would like to talk to the puppet masters, in other words, Britain and America. So he just fobs off the MDC, and he doesn't even pretend to be interested in negotiations with them. He just fobs them off. He's been torturing their followers by the hundred, and he. Has said that he will never allow the MDC to come to power in that country. Now the MDC is so popular now that they probably have a 70 or maybe an 80 percent following by now. But Mugabe is not interested in that, and so his little theory that that the MDC is a sort of Western world liberation movement and he's going to fight them. And what was amazing was. All these 14 Southern African countries gave him the thumbs up,、hmm. and so I tell people that that is the Marxist Brotherhood that I was warning people about years ago. Well, we know also the Congo went communist when Laurent Kabila took power there, and、uh, exactly, and Mugabe was supporting him, and、uh, there was talk. Didn't he send some troops up there into Congo to he help? He sent lots of troops. In fact, without Mugabe, Kabila would probably not have made it. Mugabe sent something like eleven thousand troops. He sent、uh, his he sent almost his entire air force, 
and they fought there for years, and they were actually very crucial in keeping him in power. Incidentally, Marxist Angola also sent troops in at the same time. Yes, Angola, a very significant country in which a long-time civil war between the communists of the MPLA and the uh, the uh, freedom forces under Jonas Savimbi, uh, UNITA. Yeah. And Savimbi was tragically uh, killed some years back, and his movement collapsed, and uh, the communists have consolidated their hold of that country as well. You left Zimbabwe, Rhodesia, uh, after the communists took power, just before they took power? I left in 1981, just after Mugabe had just come after. to power. And you, you, of course, came to South Africa, and then you got a chance to watch the process unfold in South Africa of the communists using their tactics to take power in yet another country, a much more powerful country. Uh, perhaps you can tell us a little bit about that. You know, everybody, and I'm talking almost everybody that I've come across who's lived in Zimbabwe or Rhodesia at some point and who later moved to this country, whether they did so 25 years ago or five years ago, all of us uh, notice one interesting thing. The minute you come to South Africa and you start listening to the political debate in South Africa, then you get this sense of deja vu, that everything that you're hearing in South Africa, you've heard before, and you heard it in Zimbabwe. And that was how it was for me. When I came to South Africa, shortly after Mugabe had come to power, at first everything was quiet here in South Africa. But the minute Mugabe was in power and, and entrenched and so forth, the, the, the sort of battlefront moved into South Africa. And they were, it was only quiet for a year or so here. And then the terrorism started. And then bombings and all sorts of attacks uh, became the norm in South Africa. And then, of course, the world also just focused more and more on South Africa. And... It was interesting to, to listen to the debates and the politics because you could see that in Rhodesia, the, they had said, well, you know, we're against colonialism. We want to get rid of colonialism. And they'd give a whole bunch of their socialist arguments. Then in South Africa, they'd say, we want to get rid of apartheid. And then you'd hear all, exactly all the same arguments coming up again. But now this time the enemy was apartheid. And the whole negotiation process and everything, it was literally exactly the same thing. And there was, in fact, there are many white people who left either Rhodesia or Zimbabwe who decided not to even bother to come to South Africa because everybody knows that South Africa is going to go exactly the same way as Zimbabwe. And when I wrote Government by Deception, a lot of people in South Africa were extremely irritated by me drawing these parallels between these two countries, and yet you could draw thousands of such parallels between the two countries, and it's common knowledge among Zimbabweans. All Zimbabweans uh, can see the parallels. But in South Africa, lots of people don't want to acknowledge the truth. You know, they, they don't like hearing this kind of talk. And when the ANC came to power, it was a similar sort of thing. There were the same old debates over capitalism versus socialism, and then you'd get some fool getting up and saying, yes, but, you know, we must remember to include Marxism in the debate and all that sort of nonsense. And 
all the same old socialist promises to the blacks. And you must remember that all these liberation movements keep telling the blacks that all their problems come from the whites, all their problems are caused by capitalism, and that the minute that socialism comes in, it will be a quick fix. And these people believe in this concept that there's a quick fix. By the way, several weeks ago, there was a, an institute in South Africa. I think it's the Institute of Race Relations. But they put out an interesting set of facts that nobody in the mass media wanted to touch. They said that in the time since the ANC has ruled South Africa, the poverty among the poor blacks, the poorest blacks, has doubled. And hmm. somebody else showed me an interesting thing. If you go to the United Nations, if you look at the Human Development Index for Southern Africa, you will see that the Human Development Index has been going down since 1994 when the ANC came to power. But you won't see that mentioned in any of the major newspapers and none of the mass media in the world will run any of these stories. And, and, of course, this is, this is consistent with the coming to power of Marxists anywhere, whether it's in exactly. Russia or Southeast Asia. Whenever we see Marxists come to power, the standard of living falls, the economy suffers, and, in fact, freedom of speech even suffers in the long run as the communists consolidate power. Um, uh, we're here with uh, Jan Lamprecht in South Africa. We'll be back after this. You're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show with your host, Jeff Nyquist. Plugging you into life. We are Live Radio 1020 WIBG. Whether it's Hurley in the morning, Henning in the afternoon, Dr. Jim Dobson and Focus on the Family. South Jersey's fastest growing Christian news talk. Now with more than a million listeners and hits at WIBG 1020. WIBG. 1020 WIBG. Or at WIBG.com. Plugging you into life. Now we continue again with Jeff's phone conversation with the author of Government by Deception, Jan Lamprecht. Africa. The white colonizers have been driven out. The black Africans have taken power. All is well with the universe, right? But who are these men who have taken power in sub-Saharan Africa? They're Marxist-Leninists. They follow the party of Lenin, the party of Stalin, the party of Mao Zedong, they are aligned traditionally either with China or the former Soviet Union. These men are all communists. Robert Mugabe in Zimbabwe, Laurent Kabila and now his son in the Congo, Nelson Mandela, the liberator of South Africa, followed by Thabo Mbeki, and of course Jose Eduardo dos Santos in Angola. We're here with uh, Jan Lamprecht in South Africa. Um, people here, they've got this idea that Nelson Mandela is a hero. We have in this country, uh, Martin Luther King is a hero. We celebrate his birthday for helping, uh, you know, advance black rights in the United States. Is Nelson Mandela a hero or is he not? Well, in South Africa, he's a god. <laughs> you know, he is regarded as as the father of the nation, they have a name for him. They call him Madiba. And this is supposedly means he's like the father of the nation. 
I personally regard him as a terrorist. He's really no different to Robert Mugabe. In fact, Nelson Mandela himself admits to signing off on terrorist acts. Over and above the fact that he was convicted of terrorism, in his Ravonia trials, they had evidence that he was going to unleash a countrywide bombing campaign. He wanted to unleash thousands of terrorists across South Africa. And he was in cahoots with the South African Communist Party. Um, in his own book, Long Walk to Freedom, Nelson Mandela admits that when he was in jail, he was involved in signing off on the Church Street bombing. The Church Street bombing is one of the worst uh, atrocities in the history of South Africa. Approximately 200 people were injured and about 17 were killed with a car bomb hmm. uh, that went off in Pretoria. And Nelson Mandela admits to signing off on it. So, you know, I really don't think that there should be any questions about the fact that he's a terrorist, okay? He he just says that, well, you know, apartheid was so terrible that, you know, you had to use any means to defeat it. The fact of the matter is, if you go and look at the history of South Africa, apartheid only began in 1948. And Nelson Mandela formed the armed wing of the ANC in 1961. So apartheid had only been around for about 13 years. Now, if you go into the history and you hear about all the horrors of apartheid, you'll see all the horrors of apartheid occurred after 1961. And that's because Nelson Mandela started a war in 1961. He formed the armed wing and he started using terrorism. And all, all of this so-called oppression that you hear about actually happened after the fighting had started between the two sides. If you go and look at apartheid prior to 1961, you will find almost no evidence of even any kind of uh, violence at all. Hmm. Now, uh, Nelson Mandela is a communist. That's uh, my understanding that he's even uh, written in his own hand when he was arrested uh, an essay that he had begun, How to Be a Good Communist. Um, exactly. What has become of the anti-communist black leaders in South Africa, like uh, Mayor Linda of Cape Town and uh, the chief of the Zulus, uh, Chief Putalezi? What has happened to them? Most of them have totally disappeared off the map. They, You don't hear about them, you don't hear their names. Putalezi is about the only one whose name you hear now and then, but not much. He's not regarded as much of a player anymore. So the communists managed to neutralize the anti-communist blacks, and they did this by perhaps saying that anyone who went against them was a traitor to their race? Yeah, well, their line of thinking was allowed to dominate everything. Um, when they came to power, you know, the media in South Africa played a huge role in assisting them. And everything that came out of the ANC's mouth was regarded as, you know, the truth, and that's the end of it. And we're all going to do the same thing. There was a lot of this talk of the Rainbow Nation and all that sort of stuff. There is, by the way, a very interesting uh, article written by Dr. Richard Cumming, which comes from a book that he wrote called The Pied Piper. And Cummings is actually an ex-CIA guy. And he said that this book contains the untold story of how the CIA helped to defeat apartheid. And he writes a lot about the liberals and the CIA 
and the and how at a point in time they decided that it was best to assist the ANC. And I think if I look at how the ANC has behaved, I do think that there is something going on. The ANC sometimes pretends to be democratic, but it's not really. Mm-hmm. And then it'll do something Marxist on certain fronts, like starting to take away the farmland from the farmers. But on the other hand, it will say it wants foreign investment. So it seems to play an interesting game between sort of diluting its communism because it's getting other benefits, maybe from the Western world, for the time being. Mm -hmm. But what we must remember is that Robert Mugabe did the same thing 20 years ago. When he first came to power, he surprised everybody by not nationalizing everything. But then he slowly started changing the rules. And the longer he remained in power, the more he changed his rules. You can see the same thing in South Africa. You can see the rules slowly changing. And they'll take away the land from the farmers, but they won't take away land that's in use. Then after a while, they'll change that rule. And so slowly they just turn the screws and they go harder and harder for the Marxist way of doing things. Well, let's let's talk a minute about why South Africa, the country that you're in right now, why it has the highest murder rate in the world, higher by far even than the murder rate in Colombia, which is engaged in the civil war. Tell us about this, and you talked about turning on the screws. Is this part of turning on the screws to get white people to give up their property? You know, Jeff, back in 2001, I, I wrote in my book, and I said that this isn't a crime wave, it's a crime war. And everything I said in Government by Deception has pretty much come true. And everything remains as true today, if not truer than at the time of writing. If we go back to the 1980s, the ANC was planting bombs, there was terrorism, there was fighting. And then with 1994, everybody said, well, now we're going to hand over to the ANC. So now the war is coming to an end and there's going to be peace. But what actually happened was, as the ANC came to power, crime started increasing ever more and more. There is an interesting um, analysis that I put on my website. I entitled it, How Nelson Mandela Brought Crime and Murder to South Africa. And I can give you the link for it later on. Mm -hmm. And it uses crime statistics going back to 1975. So it's from 1975 until about 2000, 2001. And in that, you will see that as the ANC came to power, crime has been increasing in South Africa for the last 25 years, probably now for the last 30 years, nonstop. But what happened was by about 2000, 2001, crime was starting to scare people. And in 2000, the government did a strange thing. Overnight, they said that there was going to be a moratorium on all crime statistics, and they would no longer issue crime statistics to the public as had been the practice before. They would instead hold the crime statistics back for a year, and they'd then release them. And so since 2000, the crime statistics have either been pretty much the same, slightly up, 
or slightly down. But the crime statistics have been open to question ever since 2000. Mm. And right up to this day, the crime statistics are a very important issue. Crime has become so all-encompassing in this country that, you know, we need to sit and talk for about an hour just about all the aspects of crime. Crime has not only increased, it's become more vicious. People have been tortured. People are killed for anything. You know, they'll steal a cell phone from a guy and shoot him dead. They'll say to a guy, give me your money. He gives them 10 rand. They say, that's not enough. And they shoot him dead. You know, they will go and steal from somebody's house and then they'll rape all the women. Or they'll gang rape all the women. Or they'll torture people. And the crimes have become more militaristic. They've become more militarized. They've become more vicious. Um, you have whole gangs with AK-47s engaging in shootouts and shopping malls and things. The kind of crime we have is so vicious and extreme these days. It defies imagination. And it drives people crazy. Now, interestingly enough, uh, as it was, before the ANC came to power, we lost almost a million, we lost about a million white people who left the country in 10 years. And then somebody did a survey back in 2005, and the survey from about 1995 to 2005 said that another million people have left. Out of, out of 5 million white people? Out of 5 million, yeah. So we've lost, in total, about a million and a half, I'd say. It's very hard to say because of other um, fluctuations and other statistics. But you could say that well over a million people have left. There are no statistics publicly available that tell us how many people leave each month. That's always been a closely guarded secret for the last 20 years. Do you think, Jan, that the, that the crime to some extent, is being politically organized as a terror campaign to drive the whites out? Yeah, we're losing a lot of skilled people, and we're losing whites. I mean, farmers, there used to be about 60,000 farmers in South Africa. And I read some time ago that we're down to about 30,000 farmers hmm. because the farmers have also been under incredible attack. About 2,000 farmers have been killed in farm attacks in the last... Uh, 15 years or so. But even as the farmers improve their security, it has been shown that the attacks increase in number. Hmm. And at the beginning of, of this year, a major newspaper uh, called the Star Newspaper in Johannesburg ran a story about farm attacks going urban. And they were saying that the same kind of um, strategies used in farm attacks are now being used in the towns and the cities. And that last year in Johannesburg alone, there were 6,000 attacks. The police count them in, in a classification called aggravated robbery. But these are robberies where there is violence involved, where people are shot, where people are raped. And they were saying that last year, 6,000 out of 10,000 robberies in Johannesburg uh, were now uh, occurring with this kind of viciousness. But what happens, Jeff, is these crimes, there's a certain style of attack that was used against the farmers, and that's now being used in the cities. Basically, what you have is they've analyzed this, and people who've studied it say that it works like this. You have 
almost like a spy who comes and checks out a suburb, and they leave uh, sort of markers. They leave like a, a Coke tin or a, or a plastic packet outside your house, and that will tell somebody else, uh, for example, that this house is unprotected or it's easy to get in or the owner is armed. And then a gang that is armed and perhaps has a truck or something will come into that street and then they'll go to those houses and they'll hit them one after the other. And there's also a military tactic involved in it. Some of these guys come in gangs and they're armed with AK-47s and they've staked out these people. They know their weaknesses. They hit them at a certain time and so on. And these crimes are increasing and they're violent. Crime has become such an issue. Now, there are people who've studied some of these crimes in the farming regions, and they've come to the conclusion, for example, that there are interesting links. I was told by somebody who was involved in the commandos. The commandos used to protect the farmers. And in the ANC, the farmers are under a lot of attack, and yet the ANC suddenly decided to disband the entire commando system which was composed of thousands of white farmers. And so it makes them even more defenseless. Now, one of these uh, commanders told me that in certain studies, they had actually tracked these killers back to a sort of organized crime system where there were people who were being paid money to train these farm attackers. And they, they even get it to the point where they say, a guy goes into the farmer's house, but he doesn't go to steal anything. He just goes in there and he maybe moves some things around. And they see if anybody notices this. They do, they do a lot of sophisticated stuff to, to check out this target and how easy is it to hit. And then they come in and they hit it. And sometimes, like with these farmers, for example, they'll come and kill the people and they won't even steal much, if anything. And also another thing that happens in farm attacks is farm attacks are not carried out by people in the area. The farm attacks are carried out by people who come in gangs from the cities. They drive long distances and they hit the farm and then they go back. They're like trained professionals. So this is almost like a military operation. Yes. Lots of our crime, lots of our crime, Jeff, is almost like military stuff. Another thing, let me tell you something that's happening now that I doubt has ever happened anywhere in the world. The last six months or so, criminals have been blowing up automatic teller machines. They go with commercial explosives and they blow up the whole ATM in order to break into it. It's so bad now that they say they're blowing up one ATM. I think they're blowing up an ATM every day now. So. I know at one point they were complaining that it was one every week, but now it's about one every day, I think. So what is, is there a political motivation? If these people are organized and they're not always doing it for the money and killing, is it to drive white people off their land, to cause white people to leave the country? Is it, what, what exactly is, is... Jeff, I think that when you look at the whole crime scene, you will see that the criminals live a charmed life in this country. I believe that is politically motivated. I believe that all crime in this country is encouraged from a politically motivated angle. The government could never openly come out and say, we want white people to leave, because that would irritate the Western world. The United States and Europe would not put up with that. 
So I think that the crime is like the ANC was a terrorist organization, and I think the terrorism just carried on even after they came to power. But it carries on in another form. Now let me give you some examples of why crime in this country will never come to an end. When Nelson Mandela was in power, he was the first guy to start letting criminals go by the thousand. In one of the early years when he was in charge of the country, he said that as a birthday present, can you believe this? The words used in the media were, as a birthday present to the country, Nelson Mandela would let 9,000 prisoners go. Hmm. And ever since Nelson Mandela started that, it's been carrying on. They complain on the one hand that our prisons are overfull. Now, keep in mind, everybody will tell you that apartheid was this criminal system and people were being chucked in jail and people were being murdered. But under ANC rule, the jails that existed under apartheid are not enough. They've built new jails, and even those jails are overcrowded. So they say that we can handle a prison population of 180,000, but that we have more criminals than that in our prisons. And then they come and they say that they need to let these people go because the prisons are too full. So they let people go by the thousand at a time. Hmm. Um, just in August last year, they came and said that they would let 63,000 criminals go. Wow. They say that it's non-violent criminals. Among the 63,000 that they let go, they said 50,000 were criminals who were non-violent and 13,000 were criminals who could not afford to pay their fines. Hmm. Just this last week, they said they would let another 11,000 go. Plus, they also have a system in place whereby any criminal who gets a sentence automatically, if he has a bit of good behavior, his sentence is reduced and he can go on parole. They actually have a system, Jeff, that a criminal can be caught today and he might get a five-year sentence, but he'll be out on the streets within a year probably. I'll give you an example. We have a serial killer here. They called him the Jesus serial killer because he carved the name Jesus on somebody. The Jesus serial killer, and by the way, we have plenty of serial killers. We've got so many serial killers, we don't even notice them. We don't even care who they are because we've had dozens and dozens of them, okay? The Jesus serial killer killed 16 people and raped 19. He got a sentence of 25 years in jail. Now, the way the criminal system under the ANC works is this. Let's say you've got 10 charges against you. Let's say they sentence you to 10 years in prison for 10 different things. So let's say you're getting a 100-year 100 100 jail sentence. Those 10 sentences run in parallel. So in reality, if you had 10, 10 sentences of 10 years each, the maximum time that you'd spend in prison is actually 10 years. And then for good behavior and all that, you'd be off in no time at all. Hmm. You probably wouldn't even spend five years in jail. Hmm. So criminals, you must understand, they catch the criminals, they stick them in jail. Some of them don't even get that far. Some of them escape before then. But most of the criminals know that the justice system yeah. is just like a revolving door. 
as some go in, others go out. Uh, we're here with uh, Jan Lamprecht in South Africa. Boy, there's just so much to talk about, isn't there? There's tons of stuff, Jeff. You know, for example, some of the biggest companies in this country have tried to come out against crime. We've had dozens of people starting anti-crime organizations. And one of our biggest banks in this country decided to engage in a 20 million rand anti-crime campaign. They were going to create a letter to President Mbeki. They wanted to flood him with a million letters against crime. Uh-huh. There were other huge companies that came in. Pick and Pay is the biggest supermarket chain in the country. They decided they were going to back the bank. Uh, another guy runs a thing called eBlockWatch, which has got 35,000 members. He also said he would back the bank. The businesses were going to back the bank. Hmm. But the minute people heard about it and it got into the, the media, the bank chickened out. Hmm. Other things, we had lots of high-profile murders. We've had journalists being shot. There was a period of time in the last six months where we had actors, musicians being shot dead, famous sportsmen murdered, all this kind of stuff. Uh, There's a crime in this country, Jeff, is out of this world. Yeah, and uh, we're running out of time. Uh, we're here with uh, Jan Lamprecht in South Africa. Uh, this is the Jeff Nyquist Show. Uh, Jan, uh, tell them how to reach your website and how to get your book. Okay, my book is called Government by Deception. You can buy it either from Amazon.com or a website called HiddenMysteries.com. And my website's called African Crisis, www.africancrisis.org. And Jeff, when you look at crime in our country, you will see that the government talks hard about crime, but it does nothing. And the crime just gets worse and worse and worse. And I believe that that is a... A strategy. You know, if they'd wanted to do something about it, they could have solved hmm, it. Interesting. Easily. I have to go, but uh, thanks for being on, and uh, maybe we can do this in another month or two. Yes, you tell me what you want to talk about, and we'll talk about it. Okay, Jan, thank you so much. Okay, Jeff, okay. enjoy. Bye-bye. We asked six college-age young people to tell us what they think about a variety of social and moral issues. I supposedly live in a democracy, but I, I haven't learned anything in high school or in my two years of college to um, begin to tell you why democracy is important. I'm not, um, I'm not for war. I don't support war at all, so I wouldn't want to go. I'm not an academic. I don't want to be an academic, and I really don't understand why I'm there, so if I have to cheat in order to get through it, oh, I will. There's been a moral and intellectual revolution in this country and in the Western world. And that revolution began in the 19th century, and it continues to today. And it's been very gradual over a long period of time, so individuals, particularly young people without a lot of historical knowledge, don't know that the revolution has taken place, don't realize how different they are from their grandparents and great-grandparents. I don't see how killing another person for killing somebody else is really going to solve any problems. I don't think it's appropriate to take life. Ideas that were once preserved for all time are only possessed now by a minority of the young people, not by a majority. I know that Christianity teaches that Christ is the only God. I think of Jesus Christ as just a symbol of that, that captures that idea of 
really following your heart and um, really holding on what really makes sense to you. I don't think there's a true a religion that everyone could flock to now and say this is the, what you've been doing isn't the answer. This is the answer. I don't I don't believe that exists, but I believe that it can be boiled down to a basic essence of you and a spiritual relationship with you know one greater than yourself. Are these the answers that we would like our children or grandchildren to give to these questions? You cannot know how much of what you believe and perceive to be real and true is actually real or true. You just can't know. You're hoping that it's real and true. You're really hoping that it is, because if you're wrong, you're screwed. <laughs> but you don't know. We need to have a discussion. We need to have a serious discussion in this country about this revolution, this change that has brought about a complete, almost elimination of the moral grounding of the past. One of the first thinkers to realize that there was a revolution taking place was Friedrich Nietzsche. And in 1885, he wrote, Nihilism stands at the door. Whence comes this uncanniest of all guests? And nihilism is defined in Webster's Dictionary as the doctrine which denies any objective ground of moral principles. And Nietzsche believed it wasn't because of social conditions, it wasn't because of corruption. He said it was because of one thing. The decline of Christianity, the decline of belief in God, meant the decline of a belief in higher values. Is Nietzsche right? Has the decline of religious and moral teachings, particularly belief in God, has that gone together with the decline in morality? It's sort of hard to conceive of there being a meaning of life when you don't believe in life after death, and you don't believe in the devil, and you don't believe in God. It's hard to come up with any point to anything. D.J. McGuire is president and co-founder of the China E-Lobby. He believes the next president will have to deal with the communist Chinese invasion of Taiwan, which he's convinced will occur before 2012. D.J. McGuire, who's also the author of Dragon in the Dark, how and Why Communist China Helps Our Enemies in the War on Terror, will be Jeff's special guest next week. Please join us for another fascinating interview. Thank you for listening to the show. You can visit my website at jrnyquist.com. Until next time, I am Jeff Nyquist, and this has been the Jeff Nyquist Program. From the Jeff Nyquist Studios on California's North Coast and from our flagship broadcast facilities at WIBG 1020, Atlantic City Suburban Philadelphia's number one news talk station, you've been listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. We invite you to join us again next week at the same time. In the meantime, please visit Jeff's website at jrnyquist.com. Again, that's jrnyquist.com. Thank you for listening.